As I'm sure you would have noticed, this is the 100th episode of the Sports Initiative podcast. We've been fortunate enough to have some excellent practitioners share their work and experiences with us. As a special treat for our 100th episode, we're going to look back at some of the best bits of the podcast and reflect on some of the brilliant topics and discussions that we've had. Can I personally say thanks so much for your engagement with the podcast and here's to at least another 100 more. Oh, and make sure you share with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Our first clip comes from episode 23 with Russell Earnshaw and John Fletcher. The founders of the Magic Academy, they discuss how session design can help develop leaders. I mean, everything that Russell said, so lots of it should just be implicit and in, in, in through how you, you're designing stuff and your, your skills as a coach and stuff, but occasionally you might want to go, so we're actually going to focus on leadership. So like, and, and maybe, you, you know, use the, use the whiteboard or use the clickers or use parents just to notice some stuff. So we would, um, the stuff we've been playing around with the younger ones within rugby would, so we would call that like sort of general behaviour. So like, who's the general, maybe associated with an animal when they're really young. So who's, who's like behaving like a lion? Um, if, if you've associated or uh, sort of lying with sort of leadership stuff. Um, and then just notice it, you know, just like, and then praise it. It's just what good coaching, good parenting would be really, isn't it? I, I think we're missing loads of um, good leadership stuff. I do think we're preventing it, which is what Rusty sort of alluded to a lot. But I think there's some stuff going on that's going unnoticed. Um, and actually I had this chat with my youngest last night who um, would probably describe himself as a good leader because he actually organises and he's talking a lot and he kind of gets the game and stuff. And I challenged him around, well, who else in your team do you think leads? And we came up with this other player who actually is really, really quiet, but actually leads in a different way. So I actually think we need to reframe what leadership is. Um, It's not just always the kid that talks the most. Yeah, I like the stuff you've done, Fletch. Um, and, And you talk about, well, what if the coach wasn't there? But the stuff you've done at the club around the wizard, uh, the the general the the medic the so actually understanding those different versions of leadership in a team yeah absolutely right just to, and again just bring it to life and what 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 we did we scored it was is really interesting uh, Mike so we had a we, we had two teams we kind of split them in terms of their, their their sort of rugby ability however one team was really strong around this wizardry stuff and the other one was really strong around this warrior stuff so like you know effort and and interestingly enough, actually, that was good because we, we then played a number of weeks and it, and it did impact on how we actually moved the squad around a bit. We, we tried to get a much better blend. Um, so, so, so we had a team that full of kids who just grafted and worked really hard. And we had a team full of kids who were probably trying some stuff. And um, yeah, we didn't mix them up that well. We mixed them up and based upon probably actually the outcome of the match. You know, how would this... You know, how many tries would this team score compared to how many tries this team would score? And it, it, it did definitely impact what we did the week after. We swapped some people around. So we had a better blend of that general wizardry, warrior, medic, um, and whatever the other one is. I can't remember. How did you um, bring those to the kids? Yeah, well, we just got... Uh, w- so I, I wrote them on the board and I said, what do these re- represent? And we kind of got there. So, like, the wizard was the easy one. So we would talk a lot about magic moments and... 
actually they they got them all really quick really general so like you know what you know what sort of general behavior um everybody pointed who they think is a good general at this moment in time type stuff and and then the coaches we just referenced that bit so we used that language so we would say you know we would say oh that's a great warrior moment or isaac mate what a warrior and, and all that sort of stuff and we measured it so we got the we got parents to measure it and then we like kept this tally and we we spoke about it at the end of the game uh we played played a team called northern who are like really strong um I mean, we got thumped, but we like we 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 did really well around this type of stuff, and the kids loved it. The kids just l loved the fact that we were measuring it and we're trying to support them around it. And we had some conversations. It's it's definitely something we're going to do a lot more of. It's going to come even more into our into our training, not just our games. Um, How important do you think the scaffold inside is? Because I I see a lot of people talk about the decision making side. Uh, side or the leadership side and almost I feel like there two answers are either I have to tell them what good leadership or good decision making is because then they've got no reference point or I'm just going to leave them to it and let them try and figure it out I think a lot of coaches struggle with that in between and providing a certain level of scaffolding or support but then allowing them the autonomy to go and look around how important do you think kind of figuring out what scaffolding needs to be in place is? I think it's critical. I think Twitter's full of people who claim there's people at either end of the spectrum and the reality is there isn't. Um, Co-creating was something I was thinking about then. So as an example with hockey goalkeepers, they often, they're often getting changed a little bit longer than everyone else. It takes ages to put the kit on. So their kind of, how they interact with their peers is slightly different. And they've got a mask over their face. So um, they often wear a mask in huddles and they miss opportunities to connect. So Matt Ways, you know, just started out. He just said, look, I co-create the sessions with the goalies. So immediately giving them much more opportunities to lead and, and to decision make and solve problems. And that's a real simple scaffold. It might be, as Fletcher said, a whiteboard. And actually, we're going to just keep a record of the tactical kind of warfare that went on in today's session and then we're going to reflect on that. So a whiteboard might give someone the ability to write some stuff when they might currently not feel comfortable saying some stuff. Uh, it might be, let's agree what a huddle looks like, or it might be actually Mike's team is going to do a huddle, Fletch, your team is going to watch Mike's huddle and you're going to give them feedback on it. So it's it's all that type of that type of stuff. And then from a decision-making point of view, for me, it's... How can we understand what the kids have seen? And so there's a couple of things. Uh, Mike Ashford said to me, uh, and to you, Fletch, um, the, um, you can only see what you can do. So the reality is if we want good decision makers, we need to make them really skillful. So Messi's probably a good decision maker, I would imagine. He's quite skillful, although it seems like he's making some bizarre decisions at the moment. Um, and then in order to understand what they've seen, it might be actually freeze close your eyes, you know, where's the, where's the person you would pass to if you got the ball? It might be replay, look, do you want to have another go at that? Because actually it was a really good decision, possibly wasn't good execution, or actually do you want to think about what are the decisions to make? Or it might be you scaffolding things like pauses, so like a timeout, actually, Rusty, we need a timeout. Um, we just need to chat about how they're defending because we're not making good decisions on playing 
but we've noticed that they're defending this twice. Yeah, I think it's it's all it's it's what do we do before the session? It's what are the skills we use during, and then what do we use after? And Fletch works with um, Sarah Kelleher in, um, in in England hockey, and and she does a brilliant thing where they replay the best five moments of the session afterwards. So there's a great way to reinforce really good decision-making, collective decision-making, either in attack or in defence. So for me, it's what am I doing as a coach before the session? Is there some priming? Is there some meetings? Is there some stuff that could have happened? Is there a, a whiteboard? What am I doing during the session? What do the individual interactions look like? And, and, and then what am I doing after? And the last thing, actually, Fletch, we chatted about this the other day, and I don't know if you've had a chance to do it yet. I haven't. But what if we just ask questions of players next to players? So what if we asked Fletch, what do you think Mike saw? Or Mike, what do you think Fletch was thinking when he did that then? So we didn't ask the person directly. So we asked people around them. So we started to build connections between people. So there's my thought experiment for your first week back, Mike. You're not allowed to ask questions directly to people. You have to ask questions about people to other people. Our next clip comes from episode 69 with Todd Bean. Todd is the founder of the Tova Academy, which looks to promote the football philosophy of Johan Cruyff. Here he discusses how session design can holistically affect and improve an individual. Most children show up to a field somewhere in England, somewhere in the United States, somewhere in New Zealand. They have a coach that pulls out the bag of balls and pennies and cones and finds a patch of grass or dirt or, <laughs> or cement and has to train a group of individuals. So we also want to make a distinction between, you know, these elite professional academies that have an amazing amount of resources and a unique agenda to develop professional players in a highly scrutinized environment. and Todd being the coach in California that's trying to promote learning and joy for the under 12 boys so that they maximize their potential on and off the field. It's a different agenda. So often we get seduced by taking a Pep Guardiola drill. We saw it on YouTube, which was really the physio's drill to rehabilitate a player or to work on fitness. And then we think, okay, that'll be great for my under 12 team. I would suggest not YouTubing your way through under 12 trainings because that's not coherency, consistency for a player in a learning program that pr will promote the maximum joy. That's Pep Guardiola and his very sophisticated staff exercising their task to make sure that every player is capable of playing as much as possible in a complex professional environment. And I think that's where also we get duped into thinking that the top level is the same as the youth level. And it's not. And we want to recognize what children are doing when they're in the process of maturation and what children are needing when they're maturing through those ages. Yeah, I think it's, what you said there is really important. I'm a big believer in this. You can't just steal sessions from the top end because this might not be pertinent to your under six who's just started playing football. So maybe if they've been working on bicycle kicks, well, this little under six can't even kick the ball yet. So maybe doing that for him isn't, isn't right. Um, in looking at, in terms of like a curriculum or syllabus that you guys have in place that you work with, you know, your, your selected coaches or clubs with, do you have anything particular in place and what does that actually look like? Yes. So we, when we work with clubs and it was also the same, you know, working back at, uh, with IX at the highest level, this is consistent. We always start with 
envisioning the ideal. And it's a process, right? Most coaches want the drills. And I cannot emphasize enough that that's the last place you start. The how to train is the last. The why is the most important. Why are we training this population of children in our charge, right? Who are they? Where are they from? What is the agenda? And at Tovo, we come back to one basic why. We want to promote learning and joy. Now, that sounds so simple. So from that point, we start to examine our assumptions. Okay, if we want to promote learning and joy, is what we're doing currently the most effective way to promote learning and joy? For example, simple example, is winning and losing the best metric if my agenda is to promote learning and joy? And I think it's pretty obvious, Mike, you see that it's not. Right. If I can only promote learning and joy by winning and being at the top of the table, that makes the other 15 teams in the league have a very fruitless season, which is, of course, ridiculous. I've coached winning teams. I've been on winning teams. I've been on losing teams. I've been on mid table teams. You can promote learning and joy in losing and tying and winning. Of course, we go to win, but it's ridiculous to suggest that if I'm coaching under 12 girls here, in, in Lake Tahoe, California, that the only metric of success is winning and losing. So we always start with how can we then promote learning and joy? What is the best program, curriculum, methodology? Um, and we believe that the way that we promote learning and joy is to be very clear about what it means to be an ideal footballer in this case. So we take those arduous steps of defining for our constituency what does it mean to be an ideal footballer? In the case of Tovo, it means to be intelligent. It means to be competent in the skills required to play the game. And it means to be a person of great character, respectful, ambitious, dedicated, reflective, resilient, these types of words. And we literally share that rubric, if you will, that expectation, that standard first. And now I haven't even talked about getting on the field yet. We did this at IX, and IX had its own rubric, right? You do this in any club. If you take the time as a camaraderie of coaches to do this club-wide, then you have clarity. And when you have clarity of expectations, the clarity of standards, only then, in my opinion, can you build a curriculum. Only then can you figure out with the three hours, six hours, nine hours, 15 hours a week I have with the child, what should I be doing to promote learning and joy to maximize their potential toward that ideal. And this is where we come back to curriculum. If we value, I'm not saying you value or anybody of your listeners value, but let's assume that we value, which we do, intelligence. The ability to scan your environment, make great selections and execute that. Then my training exercises put together in a coherent curriculum should nurture intelligence every moment I have a chance to work with a child. It should nurture the competencies to play the game that you mentioned. And it should nurture the character to compete and cooperate. So when you get down the road into curriculum, you're basically in triage. From the millions of drills you could choose or exercises you could choose for an hour and a half session, which do you choose? Well, at Tova, we choose the ones that nurture cognition, confidence, and character. And the other 900,000 exercises available to me are just thrown in the bin or sent off to another club to use. So when you talk about curriculum, it's not about the exercises first. It's about why we're doing what we're doing for the constituents in our charge. 
what is the ideal player that we're trying to nurture and what exercises that will form a curriculum over time best nurture those idealistic qualities. I found that 99% of the clubs never take the time to establish that ideal, to wrestle with those concepts and to put it literally onto the same page so that every coach in that staff or on that staff, excuse me, is working toward that ideal. And then by extension can build a consistent, coherent program from, as you mentioned, eight to 18. Most clubs worldwide do not have that in place. And that, for me, is a shame because without that thought process, without the details in place, without that curriculum well flushed through the system, we are not maximizing the potential of any child in our charge, be it at a top club or be it a humble club in a remote part of the world. So that work is arduous. It's difficult. It makes us challenge our craft. But when we go through that process, the children benefit and we ultimately reach our objective of promoting and learning and joy. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's, it's not the drill you start with. No, right? it does hundred percent. Well, the way I'm taking it anyway, and correct me if I'm wrong is actually remove the technical or tactical. So it's not a finishing the attack or playing out from the back. It's potentially looking at the characteristics you want from your players. So it may be, you know what, this two week block, we want to work on resilience so we're then going to choose maybe technical and tactical practices that are going to really challenge the players so that they have to become more resilient. The next two weeks may be, like you said, spatial awareness. So we're going to pick and choose practices that filter into that. And I, I think that's a really nice way of almost reversing, reverse engineering a curriculum rather than looking at the technical and tactical outcomes. Actually, what are our psychological personal social outcomes that we want and then we're going to fill in the blanks beneath that because actually there's so much resource in terms of technical and tactical stuff that we can use it's hard and i know i'm gonna it's gonna be probably a little disturbing saying this like there are certain structures that we don't use at tovo for example it's so popular as you mentioned so popular divide and so this is where we can have a discussion and and about that, it's so popular through FAs or, or, or in federations worldwide that we make this sort of social, psychological, technical, tactical dissection. But if you think about what we're doing, we're re-engaging this Descartesian model of deconstructionism, right? Which is if as a coach, I can deconstruct the parts and focus on the parts, then it works. So I want to I want to suggest to you, Michael, we don't do that. As much as that sounds logical, we just don't do that. I, I don't use that typical English FA, so what is it, psychological, tactical, to, because I don't believe that that's the way children are as beings or any of us are as beings. Like I'm not right now focusing on being resilient in this way. I'm focusing on taking on the challenges of my life in the environment in which I live. I've got six children. I've got to get some work done. We're having a great conversation. So I'm not like thinking right now after breakfast, I'm going to spend 20 minutes on being resilient. And then I'm going to do 20 minutes of building out of the back. And I'm going to be... So I think that model, the paradigm I spoke about, that traditional model is a very Western model of thinking about life. 
right? And I should say Western and not to include indigenous tribes with whom I've had the opportunity to work. Indigenous tribes do not make that dissection as much as readily as we do out of Western Europe, which was, let's break it into those parts. So I don't agree with the FA as much as you might suggest in breaking it into the psychological components. So when we train, we train principles of play. Now, and we have 14 to honor Johan and the vision uh, that he had about football. We have 14 principles of play. We'll select a particular principle of play. And then we know that the exercise that we choose, because it is not so deconstructed, divorce the mind from the body and the heart, cognition, constant character, the exercises are holistic. They always demand intellectual development, cognition, the competencies, the fundamentals of angles, distance, timing, lines, situation, as well as passing, receiving, shooting, dribbling, and heading, and the character to compete and to cooperate, to demonstrate ambition and dedication and courage and resilience, right? So we don't divide our curriculum into one small subsection of that. What we do is to ensure that we maintain the integrity of cognition, comps, and character in every exercise, but to teach practically, we may focus on preflect upon one principle of play, understanding that the social and psychological and everything else is actually holistically engaged in every moment with the exception of water break and maybe our mobility exercises with our physio. So I know when I go out to a Tovo training that the training will be mentally incredibly demanding. It will have to require resilience because every exercise is a competitive contextual exercise. So there's consequences for failure. And when you fail, you build resilience by overcoming that. I don't have to necessarily spend three weeks on resilience because every day is about resilience. Every day is about ambition and dedication and courage and reflection and respect. You win, you shake hands, you lose, you shake hands, you polish your boots, you pick up the equipment. So I don't isolate the character and I don't isolate the cognition and I don't isolate the competencies except to say that we may be working on something as you mentioned, that is relevant to our capacity to compete this weekend and to try to put that in the forefront of a child's mind while every other element of cognition, competence and character maintains the integrity because of the exercises we choose. Our next clip comes from episode 84 with Dr. Rob Bell. Here he discusses the importance of resilience in young athletes and why having a bump in the road can help athletes longer term. What, what you've mentioned there a little bit is around the, the identification process. So when we look at this in younger athletes, um, mm -hmm. how can you go around identifying whether they maybe do have high levels of mental toughness and resilience or don't and who maybe we need to work with or who it might be troublesome moving forward? Well, I think speculation is the mother of all evil. What I mean by that is there'll be so many people that miss on athletes because we make a decision when they're, you know, prepubescent 12 year old. And, you know, why, why do we miss? Because we made this impression of an athlete that has not fully developed yet. And if you like pop popcorn, it's the same thing, man. That's how development works, right? If you're like this kernel right here, this is going to be the best taste of popcorn that there is, but they all pop at different times. You never pop popcorn and they all pop at once. And so to identify really gets difficult. So this is what I have seen is that anyone who's really going to reach their full potential needs to be told at some point that they're not good enough. You can't do it. That's a bad idea. 
it's it's a horrible way to coach. It it can ruin a lot of people. And I don't I don't recommend that as the way to coach. But what I'm saying is is only those who were told that reach their true potential. And the reason why is because there is no ambiguity when it comes to that. They those individuals are going to listen to the coach that cut them, or they're going to listen to themselves and their self belief. There is no middle of the road. If you just get told as a young athlete how great you are, how great you are, well, some point everyone's great. And then you really start to question it. Well, am I really that great? And then that becomes a really uh, abyss type area to be in. And so that is the only indication that I know when someone was told that they weren't good enough. If you go and you ask anybody who's been super successful, who told you weren't good enough and they can nail it, right? Hey, it was my seventh grade teacher, man, Mrs. Barlow. She said that, or, um, you know, I was, uh, on a developmental team. I got cut when I was 14. Every single one of them have it. Because there's no ambiguity when it comes to that moment. So it's like when it comes to identification, yeah, it's rude and it's crude, but this is what I look for. Individuals whose circumstance has has toughened them up because they there was no other option. They had to be successful. Uh, were they told that they couldn't be good enough? And what type of adversity have they overcome on their path towards where they're going? And um, I just, I always look for those athletes and individuals that are going to be hungry. It's, there's, there's nothing that can derail somebody who is determined, whose time has come and that they believe in themselves. It's the unseen though. We don't see it. And that becomes a really difficult in terms of trying to identify talent. But those are a couple of the things I really look at. So why do you think it has such a profound effect or long-lasting effect on an athlete being told that they're not good enough or being cut? Well, because it negatively can affect so many people. When when you're like when you're cut, when you're told that you're not good enough, it the potential right there. What happens is is that uh, we believe it, like automatically we believe it. that oh, that person must be right. You know, maybe I'm not good enough. But then there's going to be somebody out of the shadows that comes along and says, man, you don't need to listen to that coach, man. You can, you believe in yourself. And now they've got a different voice that comes alongside them. And that's the power of a coach, the power of somebody who's going to tell you you're not good enough. But then when you have somebody that's going to come, come alongside, you say, look, man, you got to keep working hard. Stay focused on today. Don't worry about, you know, the long-term stuff. Stay focused on the short-term and just keep getting better. It's it becomes the most powerful type of, uh, you know, if I look at like getting struck by lightning, lightning is, is very powerful. And if you get that word of criticism by somebody that's going to be close to you, tells you you're not good enough, that's like lightning. But then what do we have on our houses, right? We have these lightning rods that can protect us from that lightning. So all it takes is that one person that's going to come alongside us and help coach us up through that. Why do I think it's the most powerful? Because it's, there's again, there's just no ambiguity. You cannot be in the middle when it comes to that. You can you can either believe that negative voice that tells you you're not good enough, or you can believe in yourself. There's no middle of the road when it comes to that. That's why I think it's so powerful. And do you think there's any way to prepare an individual to to be ready for that moment so that they can get through it and overcome it? So I think of you. You mentioned earlier around you know for some individuals 
this is a long lasting effect and they may not carry on sport, may not carry down the successful road they've been on. But for some individuals, it really makes them. Is there any particular strategies you can put in place to help people overcome those moments or setbacks? Well, I, I think it's a great point. And let me just reiterate that a little bit. I mean, just look at like, you know, individuals that have dyslexia and the amount of people that have dyslexia that end up becoming millionaires. Here in the United States, if you look at immigrants, if you look at all millionaires, 30% of them are immigrants. Why is that? Because their situation forced them into something where success was the only other option. There's not going to be any plan B. There's a plan A and that's it. And how do we get ready for that? Well, what I think is important is mental toughness is it's caught more than it's taught. Your situation or experience is going to be, you're going to catch it. And and when you get to be successful or when you fail, both is going to happen. Now it, it's a fish or cut bait moment. Now you are left naked in front of the gods. What are you going to do next? Now you have failed. You have missed. What now? And it's only in those moments then that the real human spirit come, can come out. So if mental toughness is caught more than it's taught, how do we prepare these individuals for that moment? And what I say is this is, you have to, in one way or another, coach them up that they are getting ready for some type of adversity moment or person that's going to make all the difference in their lives. They just don't know what it looks like or what's going to come. And so what are the areas right now that you need to prepare, that you need to work on? So when those moments hit, you're going to be ready. When that failure hits, how are you going to bounce back? What's going to be the feedback? Are you going to start blaming other people? Are you going to own it? And, and it, those are the sort of things that I think that we start to, you know, coach them up on because when those moments hit, it's too late to prepare. Like they have to be ready. And that's the only part. And that's where like the mental game becomes so important because if we wait till there's a real problem, it's too late. You know, then, um, then they get caught kind of in the abyss and, and, you know, the washing machine of uh, development and, and kind of get spun out. And that's the power of the coach and that's the power of the mental game is trying to prepare them, letting them know that no matter how bad a situation is, no matter how bleak an outcome looks, it's only going to take one. It only takes one opportunity to make all the difference in your life. That's what you're getting ready for. Our next clip is from episode 44 with Larry Sunderland. The academy manager at FC Cincinnati discusses his individual player profile ideology, the 10 plus. So I guess linking this back to where we were at the start, obviously it sounds like your vision is to make, you know, holistic players or well-rounded players within your setup. So I guess what is the academy vision for you guys? What does that look like? And then in those first, you, you said 30 days, um, what, did, what did you do in those first 30 days to try and make your academy set up it for a positive environment for when them players did begin to come in? So I tend to believe, um, I kind of have a, a, when I think about players and when I think about the future game, I, I, I guess I have this idea in my head of, of every player is, is like a 10 plus. Okay. And, and I'm using, I'm using the number 10 because I, I think about a player who's comfortable on the ball who's a good decision maker, who can break lines on the run, good range of passing, right? And, and that can play somewhere in the middle of the park, 
right? That can play with 360 degrees. Okay. So when I, when I look at players and when I think about developing players, I think about every player, regardless of what position they're playing in, they have to have some of those characteristics of a 10. And, and I believe that's where the modern game is going. And you can see it with inverted fullbacks, right? Our, our, our two and our three are not just playing in the wide areas anymore. They're, they're coming to the interior of the field and they're playing as essentially central midfielders, right? We have our center backs now breaking the line on the run, drawing out pressure to play through lines. That's some roles of a 10, right? Some profiles of a 10. You're looking at goalkeepers. You know, you're looking at goalkeepers spraying the ball around the park, right? Having some elements of, of a 10. So when I look at when I look at building out a roster or I look at building out a team with this idea of, of tactical flexibility, right? I, I need to have players that can function as a 10 wherever they happen to be on the field. Right. Um, so one of the first things I do, and, and to take a step back, that doesn't mean I want all tens. So I don't want I don't want anybody listening to go, oh, he just wants all tens. No, no, no. I, I want I want characteristics of a 10 in every position, but then there are going to be some physical profiles, some some technical profiles that put players in an area of the field. Okay, so if I'm a 10 who is extremely fast and very good in 1v1 attacking duels, he's likely to end up in the 7 or 8 11, right? If I'm a 10 who is good in the air and I happen to be 6'3", well, I'm going to be the new center half or center back, right? So, so I, I think when you start with that foundation, you need to start with a player who is very comfortable with the ball in possession. So what I've done at all, all the academies I've been at, um, my first – my, my first task is to dominate possession. And, and that's, that's what I've done in Chicago. That's what I did in Portland. And that's what we're doing now in Cincinnati. Um, you know, and you can get the analytics on that. Now, the analytics will tell you how many passes you're making. The analytics will tell you how many passes you're connecting. And unfortunately, the analytics will also tell you where you're connecting those passes, right? So, so I found when I've started all of these projects, We've, we've dominated possession in our own half, <laughs> you know? So, so then that gives me from there, that gives me the building blocks of where I want to go next and how we want to play more forward-thinking possession, right? How we want to create more opportunities going into the final third. And, and it begins, these building blocks begin to grow on one another to eventually where you get, a, a, where you get an academy built on your principles, your sub-principles, whatever they may be, but now you begin to have a real identity within your, within your academy. So would you look for coaches that are committing to do that when you were looking to fill out kind of your staffing positions in Cincinnati? Um, first, I look, for, I look for the coaches that will fit the, the environment and the culture and that are developers. That's, that's, that's what I want to talk about first and foremost when I, when I speak with uh, when I speak with individuals to come in and, and work here. Um, I want to find out what they believe as people. I want to find out the type of people they are. I want to, I want to find out what they think about development um, because it, in, in my mind, um, there's a lot of different ways to do this. 
but you can't do it with the wrong people, right? You have to have the right people. I, I think if you get the right people with the right mindset, you can do anything. And, and, and I'm in this to learn as much as anybody in my organization, right? So, so I first start with getting the right people, people that, that are open-minded, that have a growth mindset, that want to be developers, um, and that want to, that want to grow, want to learn. Um, so that's, that's my starting point. And then, then I feel as though I, I want to have a flavor and I want my flavor to be different, right? I, I, I want to have coaches on staff that are in different places in their careers. I want to have coaches on staff that bring different ideas. I want to have coaches on staff that have different playing backgrounds or no playing background. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm all about that because I think all those different pieces coming together make us better, right? Because if, if we get the culture right, we're, it's very easy to challenge one another with different ideas. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, I think I, I've certainly passed on coaches that I think are fantastic coaches to go with coaches that I think um, have a long way to go. And I've gone with the coaches that have a long way to go because I, I think often – as you're growing, other people grow along with you. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's the beauty in the process. So obviously you get those types of people in your environment um, and, you know, you're in a melting pot, if you like. So then how do you transmit those messages to the players in terms of, you know, we want to dominate possession. We want you to all be comfortable in whatever position you're in. Um, do you have like an academy philosophy that you've put together? Um, that the players are aware of or the coaches kind of work through? What does that look like? Yeah, we, we kind of, we all work off the same playbook, um, but I don't dictate what the coaches do within the playbook. So the playbook gives you a framework, but then the coaches have the, the freedom to experiment and be creative within that framework. Um, so I, I, I often find it, um, contradictory when we talk about developing creative players, right? And, and, and unfortunately, I think too often when we think about creative players, we only think about the 1v1. And, and I think that's a mistake. I think there's creativity in small groups. There's creativity in large groups. There's creativity individually. And, and I think sometimes we miss that. But we speak about developing creative players. And then we take our coaching staff and we say, okay, Monday, do this session, Tuesday, do this session, Wednesday, do this session. And as a coach, I sit there and I say, boy, does this, does this director really trust me? Does this director really value me if he's telling me this is what I have to do all the time? It's no different than a player. I have to trust a player. I have to let a player know that I value him. I have to let a player know that I have, com I have confidence in him. And, and I have to accept that he's going to make mistakes. We have to embrace that and grow from that. So you have to do the same thing with your coaches, right? The same thing. So we have a framework. We have our, our principles, which are very general. And then we have our sub-principles, which are very specific. And our principles and sub-principles are in place to, to essentially make sure that at the end of the process, you and I 
understand or see the game in the same way from these core principles and sub-principles that don't change whether we're playing direct or whether we're playing indirect. So that that's kind of our philosophy and our model uh, within our academy. In this clip, we're going right back to the old school with episode five, which, believe it or not, was pre-COVID. Here, former GB judo player Tom Reed discusses the, the unique individual development practices in judo in which after international competition all players will then hold a training camp obviously when you're in training partners you all have your own weight categories and stuff as well assuming you probably need to fight people similar weight class to you yeah but obviously you then i guess if you're both of a good level kind of competing against yeah, one yeah. another to then progress or selection or that type of stuff so how does that dynamic work yeah it's, coming from like a team sport that's i'd find that really hard to yeah. go against the same person day after day after day and yeah. then not be any clashes or it's a unique part of judo i'd say and um, not just within the club environment but also on a world scale so we're a funny sport in that we will do a competition so for example the paris grand slam that i talked about earlier um, big competition really important everyone is there to try and win olympic qualification points to go to the olympic games it's one of the biggest and most important things that they'll do to get to the Olympic Games. After that tournament on Monday, so they fought on Sunday, on Monday there's a training camp and everybody fights and trains together. It's really, really unique and quite a cool part of the sport. So it's like, imagine you've got all the best like, players from Southampton and, you know, different Liverpool and all these teams and they have a match and then they, they train together the next day. It's really, really unique. Um, but it's, it's such a, part of the sport that it doesn't feel odd to us at all um, and it's I guess it's a battle of like strategy in terms of who can use it the best to their advantage um, so you go to those training camps fight your rivals um, and try and try things experiment with new strategies take information from the fight I'm sure they're trying to do exactly the same thing to you so it's great we enjoy training together there's a really good camaraderie around um, with your rivals and teammates and even if you're fighting for the same spot or fighting against that person for qualification um, you, there tends to be pretty good camaraderie and friendship um, I think because partly the sport's just a tough sport and not not a glamorous sport in terms of uh, the prize money and all that stuff so it can, there's that sense that everyone's in it together um, but yeah in the club environment it's it's probably a little bit harder in the club environment um, when you can the hardest thing is when you compete against each other in competition um, so Training doesn't, from my own experience and from what I've seen as a coach, normally isn't an issue. So we'll have players the same weight categories, fighting for the same spots, training together. And I think because the sport isn't huge in terms of numbers, they're normally grateful to have a good partner to train with. Um, but when they fight in competition against each other, which does happen at club within the same club, competing in competition, that's a really odd dynamic. And um, that's a really high pressure fight, I think, because you know you're going to go back to the club environment and one of you's won and one of you's lost. So that, that sort of status that, that comes back with you is a big thing. Um, so that's that's the most challenging ones, I think. Um, Did you have that at all in your career here? Or not? Yes. Uh, let me think. Team Bath, yes, a little bit. But 
not as much as others because I was the only, for most of the time, I was the only person in my weight category. And there's a lot of people category below me or category above. So great training partners, but not head to head in terms of competition. And the times where there was people in the same category as me, there's quite a big difference in terms of the stage of our career and the level we're competing at that time. So it wasn't such a big thing for me, but for other, other people, it was, yeah, the weight category below, we had two guys that were both sort of international level that would compete against each other quite regularly and that was always fun when they come back to training <laughs> afterwards <laughs> but, um, they probably feel bad enough and then everyone's given yeah them exactly <laughs> exactly people tend to be quite sensitive around yeah. it um but yeah no well, i did have it at the um the funny one at the commonwealth games um when so competing for england which usually we compete for gb but obviously commonwealth games compete for england um we i shared a room with the guy that i was the other England fighter in my category and then we fought in the final and he won <laughs> and then we had to stay in the in the Commonwealth Village for another week together afterwards um, in the same room so that was but that was okay it was fine like we were yeah I, mean, I don't know if it would have been different if I'd won but it was okay but um, yeah it's, it's I guess it's character building part of the sport you have to deal with it and yeah take out the ego side of it and keep it keep it on the mat as much as you can which some people are better at than others I guess and so would you during these camps or like you said just after Paris Worlds and stuff would you teach each other techniques that maybe yeah it's say for example you're you're going against someone that you knocked out in the semi-final for example with a particular technique yeah, yeah. like how did you catch me yeah, yeah is that something that you would you do that knowledge share or I think it's bits and pieces probably not to that much of an extent I think if you've got an advantage you want you'd want to keep it and if you felt like that was the key advantage as well over that person you probably wouldn't want to share it but in general you would share a lot um but it it, it depends on how close things are in the situation I think as a group now for example these guys we do sessions we do normally 30 minutes coach led and then 30 minutes player led where they work on their own stuff and they do teach each other stuff all the time um, and there's things that they are in tune to that we as coaches wouldn't be as in tune to because we're not in the thick of the sport as much there's other things that we would see that they wouldn't see because we have that overview so it's really good for them to teach each other and the some of the nuances of different techniques um whether that's something that's always taken place that's more so now that as in with them taking ownership of part of the session or learning yes but it's happening more now i would say um so when i was training here before the three years that i was away we did little bits and pieces of that and i think the time that i was away that changed quite a lot um for whatever reason um so adam came in as an assistant coach so maybe he was part of that change um and when i by the time i came back as a coach i was told you know this is kind of how we do it now which i think is great so i really bought into that and it's something that I think we'll continue with. Um, so yeah, we did bits and pieces of it before and I think most clubs will do bits and pieces of it um, but it's something that we do, yeah, we do it regularly now. I'd say not, not with an aspiring session but with a technical session, pretty much every session we'll do it um, and it's really, I think it's been really, really effective. I think the, the players like it as well because when you're training full-time, even though you're training twice a day, it's surprising how little time you get to work on the things you want to work on if it's coach led all the time because we're trying to coach 30 people who are all at different levels different styles of judo complete they might have completely different interpretation of the sport of judo so as a coach it's so hard to run a session which and we've only got you know two coaches so we can't split the group up into lots of different groups so you feel like some of the stuff you do like you it's not that it's not relevant it's relevant but 
this is what I want to work on. I'm not getting a chance to work on it. Like, when can I have time to work on this? So I think giving them that time, they really appreciate it. In our last clip, FAYCD and former Fulham Academy coach Jeff Noonan discusses Fulham Academy's success and why he thinks so many players flourished under their care. During your time at Fulham, you, you know, you would have seen a lot of players come through and you guys as an academy had a lot of success. Noted, noticeably, you've got the Sessegnon brothers, for example, who have come through. Ryan, I'm hoping, does well for Tottenham this year. Um, as being a Spurs fan with Harry Kane going, hopefully he scores some goals. So, um, what in terms of the players that progressed um, and have gone on to have really very good careers, or you know, in the pro game, what stood out about those players, uh, if anything, and was there anything along, for example, Ryan Sessegnon's journey that stood out as something that? you guys implemented to help him progress during his time with you? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I often reflect on my time at there and, and what we did and what would I change? What wouldn't I change? I think one of the first key things actually is, um, and it ties in with your role now, people always say you need good recruitment, but actually, um, some of the players that we brought in who've gone on to have great success, we weren't in a we weren't in a struggle with with other clubs to sign, certainly at nines and tens. But actually I think yes, it's important, but the whole thing about, you know, the best players at eights, nines and tens are always the best players, that that didn't pan out. Um the biggest thing we had, I think, was the staff. We had lots of staff who loved coaching loved working with players and loved being in the, the actual job they were in. So we had um, some movement specialists. We had a really good movement program at the time, um, which linked it really well to football. And they were football coaches, but with a real interest and passion in movement. And I, I just remember the sort of energy and enthusiasm and excitement of an evening at the sessions. There was you know, kids celebrating goals, there was excitement, there was noise, there was a, a buzz to it. So staff who loved the roles and had a an energy and a commitment about them, even though they were part-time at the time, because at that time in the industry, a lot of the roles were part-time. So I think that was a really big key feature of it, that, you know, there was a real connection between staff and players. Um, I think the games programme we developed was a big key feature of it. Some of the some of the players now who've gone on, they would look at the number of tournaments they would have experienced through the Premier League games programme, but also foreign tournaments. We would have had a big games count of, you know, anything from 80 back to the 80 to 120 games a year. Lots of training games that we did of evenings. Um, so we had that. We had futsal in the programme. Um, we also had, I think, quite a varied calendar, something we spoke about earlier before the call about when do we train, when don't we train. So for me, actually, May, June and July are great times of the year to train because it's nicer weather, you can coach more, it's, you know, kids are not freezing. So that was a big, big factor as well. Um, so there were, I think there were lots of things that went into it that I look back on. Um, and one of the things on the staff that we had was this, I think people call it the cognitive differences now, but 
we had people who believed in you must do unopposed repetition, you must do drills. And we had people who believed in everything must be done in a game. And it was pretty hard managing staff with really different views. But looking back, I think the debate, and hopefully people would look back and think, you know, people were allowed to share their opinion and discuss coaching. I think that was key as well, that we could have those discussions about what went on. Yeah, I think it's really interesting and gives quite a holistic view in terms of there's probably a lot of different contributing factors that, that bring success and supports those players, which is um, really, really interesting. Um, is there any particular one moment during your time at Fulham or Palace that stands out to you as like a real good piece of work that was put together for a player, either where they got a strength into a super strength or an area for development into something that they'd had success with? Is there anything that either yourself or one of the other coaches implemented that you were like, actually on reflection, that was an outstanding bit of uh, practition? Yeah, I think generally the IDP work. So round about 2012, the, the audit system came into place. And I think we were doing it pre-audit, but we would start to break off and do some individual work with players in, in, in twos and threes. That's not purely individual, but small numbers work. And I think some of the work that was done then with individuals on their, their movement, their receiving, their ball striking, and often the two-footedness now. I look at players who've come out and their ability to be comfortable to use their, their weaker foot to get it to a level that isn't a hindrance. I think that's been quite powerful now. Um, and, yeah, certainly watching players who actually then went through the older age groups at Fulham and decisions were made where they've, they've been released but gone on to be successful elsewhere, I still... You know, I look at those with pride that we had we had some impact and some support on their programme. Yeah, I think that those IDPs are only going to become more and more prevalent. And I think that, as you said, allowing players to work off both feet is, is a really good good tool to have. And I know for sure I could have done with it when I was when I was a kid because <laughs> my left one purely for standard on now. So, um, yeah, and I think. Sorry, Matt, there's just a, a discussion on that as well that we now talk about, about is it is it two-footedness or two-sidedness? So actually, you might have the ability to to deal with the ball off both sides, but manipulate your body in a, in a good way. So you look at Harry Maguire, who's excellent at bringing it out on his right foot, but he's on the left side of the pitch because of the way he manipulates and moves his body. So... That's always a good discussion with coaches as well. Yeah, and I think that you can look at it defensively as well. You look at the first game of the Euros, there's a lot of talk of why Trippier was playing left-back. And it may have been to go against Perisic, who cuts inside, but Trippier's comfortable enough to him coming in on his stronger right foot and being able to deal with the one down the line. And I think, as you said there, there's a lot of discussion around are players competent enough to be able to switch into multiple positions they may be, he isn't going to be as good as a left back as he is a right, but is he competent enough to solve the puzzle that was ahead of him for that game? And evidently we won the game, so he probably was. So,
Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.